welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, you can, uh, you can turn into 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue our study of this powerful letter there. And I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. Uh, let me open up a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what an honor and privilege it is to call you Father. To have no separation, no distance between us and you anymore because of what our older brother Jesus did on the cross. And this morning, I pray for uh, freedom, that we would experience freedom that you've already given to us that we would be able to silence the voice of shame, of, uh, of the voice of condemnation, the voice of not good enough, and that we would be able to live in the freedom that you've done and uh, be gratitude, be grateful for all that you've accomplished. And so we're going to trust you as best we know how. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, you, you'll read the story of when King David was anointed by, by the prophet Samuel. And it's, it's such an important story. Uh, we're going to keep coming back to it as, just because it's such a key uh, um, milestone, a key insight into uh, how God is different from man. And that's important to understand. A.W. Tozer once said that in the beginning, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. Meaning that we've kind of made God in our own image. We project onto God what we think because, I mean, clearly we're right. So what self-respecting God would not be right as well. And so we project onto God what we think God might be thinking, especially when it comes to about me. And so if I'm frustrated, if I'm struggling with something that I just can't seem to overcome, maybe it's an anger issue, a control issue, or an anxiety issue, or, or something with sin, and there's something that I'm frustrated with myself and I'm disappointed with myself, then clearly God must feel the same way about me. And so we're projecting onto God what he is thinking. But the reality is, and this is what makes this story of David's anointing so powerful, is that God sees us differently. So in 1 Samuel 16, if you read the story, Nathan knows he's to go to Jesse, that one of Jesse's sons is the anointed king of Israel to replace King Saul, who's, who's going to lose the crown because of his rebellion, his disobedience. And so David shows, or sorry, Nathan shows up at Jesse's house and he, he says, let me, let me see your sons. I, I'm here to anoint one of them. And so one by one, Jesse's going to bring the sons out, starting with the oldest. And if you remember when King Saul was anointed, what was so special about Saul or what was noted about Saul was that he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a, a big, strong man, which, which is what you wanted in a king because your king was your lead warrior. He was the one that's going to lead you into battle. And so that's what you would want. And so everyone was like, man, King Saul was straight out of central casting. He was the perfect king. Thank you, God, for what you've done. And so Samuel's wondering, who will you get to replace Saul? Who will be better than Saul? And sure enough, David's, sorry, Jesse's first son walks out and he's this big, strong, strapping lad. And, and, and Samuel's like, oh God, you've, you've done it. You've outdone yourself. And then God says, this is not my man. He says, man looks at the outward appearance. Man looks at behavior. Man looks at performance. Man looks at what's being done on the outside externally. But God looks at the 
heart. And that's such a key insight that we need to understand is how man judges differently than God judges. How, what, what's important to man and what's important to God. Because we look at, well, what can you do for me? What have you accomplished? That's what man, that's what the world looks at. But God is uninterested in that compared to the state of your heart and who you are in your heart. And, and so understanding that distinction helps us understand why these people in Corinth were struggling. Because what happened is they, fall, they fell into this trap of thinking and judging like the world did. And they were attracted now to another group of people, these, these people who had come in after Paul, who were far more attractive. These were the savage wolves or the ravenous wolves that both Paul and Jesus and others warned of that would come in. In fact, they've been given a, a title, these, this title they've been given as Judaizers. And they would, they would follow Paul wherever he went after he, would, after he would leave, and they would begin to come and subtly begin to change what Paul was teaching. Now, they weren't, they weren't teaching some kind of outlandish heresy, right? They, they weren't coming in and trying to set people up and, and, and denying that Jesus is the Messiah because people had already accepted that. Instead, what they were doing is they were coming and adding something to the gospel. It was no longer Jesus plus nothing. It was going to be Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the feasts, Jesus plus the Sabbath, and, and Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. So there's all kinds of, of other rules and laws they need to add into it. And, and this isn't stated explicitly that this is what they were teaching, but I think it's safe to conclude that based on what Paul has been saying and what he is saying. See, what he did is he compared these people in chapter 11 to Satan. But he says even Satan showed up as an angel of light. Meaning that when Satan was deceiving Eve in the garden, he didn't show up in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail. He appeared as someone beautiful, as someone who is an angel of light, someone that made sense. And that's what was so deceptive. That was what was so deceiving to Eve is that he, he sounded good and he looked good. It was, it, it was good, so she thought. And that's what these people are doing. They're showing up as, as ministers of righteousness, Paul says. They're like that. They're trying to be that because they're trying to push people to the law. And we see it happening today, but what we need to understand is that these, these false apostles that Paul calls them that are pushing people to the law, we have to understand that the law is a ministry of death and condemnation. That's what he said in chapter three of this book, right? That all the law will do is a servant of death and condemnation. It will beat you up. Because as Paul says in Romans 5.20, the law was added so that the sin would increase. Not so it would control sin, not that it would contain sin, not that you would somehow be better under the law, but to actually make sin worse. That the sinful passions are aroused by the law, Paul says in Romans 7. It's a ministry of death and condemnation, which makes sense because if you think about in the garden, the tree of the knowledge, good and evil could be renamed as a tree of law, the tree of rules, the trees of do's and don'ts. And what did Jesus say? Or what did God say? The day you eat of that tree, you will only find death. And anytime you and I go to the law, anytime you and I go to these standards of performance, it will only result in death. But the flesh, will know, knowing that, deceives us, thinking that the law will give us an answer, that the law will be life to us, and we, we fall for that deception. And that's what happened here in, in Corinth, is that these men, these, these people in Corinth were deceived by these false apostles, these pseudo-apostles, Paul calls them. 
or what is translated as most eminent in some translations, but really just literally means these super shiny, sparkly apostles, which is a great descriptor because, you see, these, these apostles were more interested in the external, and they were good at it. They were very attractive in what they looked like. They were probably better speakers than Paul, more eloquent, flashy, used big words, and, and probably had fancy rhetoric and logic that would begin to appeal to people in many ways. And what they said seemed to make sense. It seemed profound. They probably also had better outfits than Paul. They probably wore the fancy outfits that all rabbis would wear. And so they looked the part. They sound the part. They were even seen as professional because they would be paid for what they were doing. And then finally, they claimed their heritage as Jews made them, give them greater insight than someone like Paul. And it'd be easy for us to look at them and say, oh, you foolish Corinthians, you know, you should have, should have known better. And yet, we fall for the same tricks today. Nothing's new under the sun. In the churches today, we see fancy preachers that have these, these clever phrases and, and use emotions to get you all riled up in order for you to try harder and do more, get serious about your life and, and, and really invest more in hoping that if you hustle enough, you'll be more prosper, prosperous. Or there's a man with a nice big flashy white smile and face on a book. And, and if you buy his book for $19.95 plus shipping and handling, he too can promise you all your dreams will come to pass. And I say we fall for it because these are the people often that have the largest platforms and the, the largest ministries and sell the most books, but they're empty. There's no life in what they're offering. Only more death and misery. Or then you get the preacher who gets up and just shouts and shames and guilts people into changing their behavior. Hoping that their listeners would feel so miserable with themselves, they'll finally get serious and put their life in order. And that's all they needed. I have a, a friend who's a pastor, and he said to me once, you know, he just likes to get beaten up every so often in church. Just enjoys that. You know, just a good, good reminder, a good conviction, as if that somehow is the Holy Spirit. Or we're even led astray by the world sometimes. Remember when the Da Vinci Code came out, that movie, and the book before that? And how so many people in the church kind of thought, well, maybe this is true. Maybe this is really the story of the gospel. Because they had a nice flashy movie with a big Hollywood star, and we could just go for it. We're so easily deceived sometimes because we forget about what Jesus has done. But maybe the worst of all this is what we do to ourselves when we listen to the flesh. The law and the standards that we put under our, ourselves under, that, that I just need to, to, to get better in some areas. I start comparing myself. If only I could be like so-and-so. If only I could be smart like this person, and more attractive like that person. If I had my life in order and this like this person, if I had that and this, and, and we start to compare and struggle and strive, and, but only falling short every time. And so that guilt and that condemnation and that misery and that failure just begins to build up because it's death. That's all the law will ever give you. Again, it's a ministry of condemnation and death. Think about it. All the law can do is point out your failures. It can't help you. It just says you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. It beats you up over and over and over again. And that's why the Apostle Paul is so strong in confronting these false apostles, these pseudo-apostles, because he knows the damage that they're doing. He knows the damage they're doing to their soul. 
And so he's been pretty, pretty direct in this, in this chapter here, calling them foolish. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, if you go back a few verses, Paul writes, he says, we're not, we're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. He says, this game of comparing yourself against other people, we're not going to do it. Because when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. Literally, they are foolish. Do you see that? It's foolish, Paul saying, whenever you start comparing yourself with other people. Because now they're your law. They're your standard. And you're putting yourself under that standard, under that law. And it's absolutely foolish. And so in chapter 11 now, he's, he's going after it. And he's trying to expose to these and overcome these false apostles. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to play your game. I'm going to beat you at your own game, you super shiny apostles. And I'm going to use your logic. He's going to silence them using the, the rhetoric and the, the, the logic of the day that often people would use. But what he wants you to know before he does any of that is how foolish it is. That he's, he's lowering himself and he's going to play the fool to overcome these fools so you don't listen to these fools. Does that make sense? So in, in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. He begins, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, for indeed you are bearing with me. He goes, indulge me. We're going to be fools for a bit. And I think that's important to understand and recognize that, that this idea of comparing ourselves is foolish because how many times have we been guilty of it? How many times have, have we fallen into that trap comparing ourselves? And Paul is going to call this worldly and fleshly behavior. Jump down to verse 16. And he says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I may boast a little. This isn't what I want to do, Paul's saying, but I'm going to do it. Just bear with me. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. It says, many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Again, this is not what God does. God doesn't sit here comparing one against the other. Why can't you be more like this servant? Why can't you be more like that servant? It's not what he's doing. He's saying, but when we do that, it's worldly, it's fleshly. Verse 19, for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. And he's, he's mocking them a little bit here. He's trying to expose the foolishness of this. Why do you bear? Why do you put up with this? Verse 20, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face. Man, what a powerful phrase. What a powerful verse that is. He's basically saying, you guys, you're showing up. They're beating you up. They're, they're slapping you in the face and they're condemning you and they're, they're just pronouncing failure over and over again. And, and what do you do? Thank you, sir. Can I have some more? You're bearing with it. You're tolerating it. Why are you putting up with this? So verse 21 says, To my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. I guess I've been going about the wrong way. But I never respect anyone else's bold. I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. So here we go. He goes, you know what? If they're going to do it, then I'm going to do this too. I'm going to play the same part. And so what he's going to begin here in the middle of chapter 11, going into chapter 12, some have called the fool's speech. Because he's going to speak like a fool. He's going to talk like a fool. And it's, it's foolish because Paul's going to compare his resume. He says, this is my resume against their resume. And it's really broken up into two parts. The first part is going to be based on your heritage 
And the second part is going to be based on your service, based on what you've done. So he begins in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He says that's, that's what they were counting on. That's what they were saying. We know better because we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, and we're descended from Abraham. Therefore, we know best. Paul says, well, check, check, check. I, I can do all those things as well. What's interesting about those three things is they had nothing to do with it. Right? They, they played no part in being Hebrews and being Israelites and being descendants of, of Abraham. For example, I'm a Canadian born of English and Irish descent, which I'm very proud of. But I had nothing to do with that. I played no part in that heritage. I just showed up that way. And that's what Paul's kind of saying is, is, listen, these guys are boasting about things that they had no part of. But now he's going to go further. And what he's going to do now is he's going to kind of compare his service record. So he says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Now notice he doesn't say, so am I. That's what he did before. He's going to go further. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I'm more so. Did you catch that? He says that how foolish it is to think that someone's more of a servant than another. But if, if I'm going to be foolish, if I'm going to be insane, let's do it. I'm even more of a servant of Christ than them. Because see, what he's doing is he's contrasting, comparing their resumes of what they've done, because what these uh, false apostles have done, essentially, is, is stolen valor. They've taken credit and they've, they've, they've taken authority when they don't actually earn it or deserve it. It's sort of like people who, who pretend to be soldiers or, or even soldiers who pretended to do more in a war than they actually did. And they're stealing that valor. And so he says, listen, we're going we're gonna to show who's got the bigger service record. But notice what he's not going to point out at this point. See, it would be easy for him to say, I've done signs, miracles, and wonders more than them. Or I've been to more places. I've preached the gospel more times. I've planted more churches. I've got more followers. He could point to all of those things as evidence of why he's got a bigger ministry. But he's not going to do that. Because he's different than these false apostles. That's what they would do. They would point to everything external. Paul's going to do something even better. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Look what he's pointing to. He says, look how I've suffered. I've been, I'm in labors, I'm in imprisonments, I'm in beatings, and in, often in danger and death. More than any of these pseudo-apostles are. I'm putting it on the line. He's pointing to his sufferings, not to his accomplishments. And so he's going to expand now on these sufferings that he's been through. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Literally, what he says there is 40 minus one lashes. And the significance of there is that Jews believe that if you, if you lash someone 40 times, it would kill a man. And so the punishment would be 40 minus one, which is 39. But the idea is we're going to take you to the edge of death and then stop short. Because it would be wrong to kill you because the punishment doesn't allow us to kill you. 
There's certain things under law that allow us to kill you. And what you have done doesn't deserve death, but we're going to take you right up to the edge of it. And he experienced that five separate times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We read about that actually in, in Acts, where, where I think it's Acts 22, where, where Paul was stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. So it wasn't like they threw a few stones. They, they threw enough stones that they thought, surely this man is dead. Let's throw a few more, and then we'll call it a day and go home. The only reason they stopped is because they thought it was mission accomplished. So think about that, that stoning that he experienced. So he was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the sea, in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Everywhere I go, whether it's in the wild, whether it's in the city, whether it's with enemies. I mean, there were people, men took a vow that they swore they would not eat, they would not drink, they would not rest until they killed the, the Apostle Paul. That was what they promised. Now, they didn't do it, so I don't know if they broke the vow or they just died. But that's, that was the persecution that he was under. That's how serious people were. And, and, and not only that, was it just obvious, but, but even people who were false brethren, people who, who Paul had ministered with, who he'd broken bread with, people he'd prayed with, who turned out to turn him, stab him in the back and attack him, these false brethren. It didn't matter where he went. People were trying to kill him. People were trying to hurt him. His life was never safe. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Not enough food, not enough drink. And then when he says often without food, he's really talking about fasting. There'd be many times where he'd be fasting for what's going on in people's lives. And so you could just imagine how frail and how thin and how undernourished he was. And then on top of that, in an environment where he wasn't dressed properly for. So in this cold and this exposure. And if you've ever been cold and hungry and tired, you know what he's going through. Sleepless nights. I mean, that's, that's a miserable experience, just lie in bed and not being able to fall asleep. And that was his life regularly. Often was he experiencing this. But you know what? That, I believe, paled in comparison to what else he was going through. Because he says, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. You see, those were external things, but there is an internal weight. There is an internal pressure, an internal suffering. Verse 29, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? See what he's saying there? Because I, I planted these churches. I, I love these people. I walked with them. I prayed with them. I, I led them to the Lord, and then I watched them grow. And when, even when I left, I didn't forget about them. I'd still be praying. them. I'd hear word about how they're doing, and I'd find out when someone's struggling. And he wouldn't go, oh, well, you know, that's what happens. 
His heart broke for them. He loved so deeply. Even to the point, and this, this humbles me, because in Romans 10, Paul says that, that his zeal, his desire is to see Israel come to faith in Christ, that he would even trade his own salvation for them. Think about that. Would you go to hell so another could go to heaven? It's a big, it's a big ask. But yet that was the heart of Paul. Now he knew it couldn't happen. He couldn't be anyone else's savior. They already had that position filled by Jesus. That was his heart and that was his desire. And so whenever someone was struggling, any time someone was going through a difficult period of time, Paul was right there praying for them, fasting for them, concerned and caring about them. All that burden within his soul. But he says, really, that's far greater than anything else. Because in verse 30, he says, if I have to boast... If I'm going to boast about anything, I'm not going to boast about my accomplishments. I'm not going to boast about what I've done and where I've been and who I led to the Lord and none of that. No, no. If I'm going to boast about anything, he says in verse 30, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. See, these, these super flashy, sparkly apostles, they were boasting about what made them great. Their eloquence their performance, their appearance, their accomplishments. And Paul says, I'm going to boast about what made me weak. He's going to explain later on as we go into chapter 12, as he concludes the full speech, that that weakness is good and to be celebrated. But it's so different than what we're used to. So I think there's some things I want us to learn from what Paul's list is here. Again, what's foolish is doing the comparison in the first place. But if you're going to be a fool, he says, well, let's, let's do it right. And I think the first thing we can take away is Paul's not complaining. He's not complaining about what he's been through. He's listing it off. And I think he even welcomed it and embraced it. It wasn't easy. He didn't enjoy it. But he understood that he was suffering because of his faith. So that's what he tells, he tells Timothy. In the last letter we have writing to Timothy, he says that all who are going to live faithful lives will be persecuted. Because that's what Jesus warned, right? Jesus says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. Because the servant's not greater than the master. And so we could expect tribulation. We could expect persecution. And that's, that's what he was experiencing. But we could also see that Paul wasn't demanding a comfortable life. He wasn't looking for that. He understood that associating himself to a man who was crucified on a cross was probably not going to be a life of comfort and ease. That the fate that Jesus suffered was probably going to spill out into him in some way. And he welcomed it. I think that's such a, such a distant message for us 2,000 years later. Because we live in a time that the world and universe has never experienced. I mean, we have, we have pantries full of food and freezers full of food and we have indoor plumbing, for goodness sakes. And you, you turn a light switch on and, and suddenly, you know, you got light in the room and, and you feel a little cold, turn on the air conditioning. A little too hot um, or a little too cold, turn on the heat. A little too hot, turn on the air conditioning. You want something, some, you know, new piece of clothing, just go online. It might even be delivered that same day. You never even have to leave your home. It's pretty sweet. I'm not complaining about it. But 
but we get lulled into this idea that life should be comfortable, that you deserve that ease. You deserve to put your feet up and relax and just make your life easy for yourself. And I think that we need to understand that that's not what Paul was after because that's not what Jesus was after. And then maybe that's not what we should be after. You see, what Jesus and what Paul were showing was a willingness to sacrifice their own comfort and sacrifice their own lives for the benefit of others. And so while he was beaten and he was whipped and he was stoned and he was hunted and he was betrayed and he was attacked, he did all that so that others might discover life in Jesus. And so it was worth it. That's what mattered to him. And he wasn't seeking out the persecution. It just simply found him because of the faith in which he lived by. And as I was, as reading that list, I felt within my soul that this was a call to action for us today. Now, please understand, I don't mean this is a call to action to create some kind of political utopia. That's the mistake we make. We look around the world and we look around our government and we see, yeah, you know, the, the, the government's controlling things or things aren't going the way we wanted to. And I think as Christians, we're so guilty of this, this idea of this looking for persecution and then demanding our rights, saying it's not fair, it's not right that we're treated this way. And so what we need to do is we need to take control of the government again. We need to fix the government. We need to, we need to change all this so that I can have my rights and I can be comfortable again. Do you see the selfishness of all that? All we're doing in that moment is we're just, we're just playing the victim. We're playing victims here to the government, to the world, and we're, we're missing out on, I think, something that is far greater and far more important. I think, I think if you think about Paul, when he lived on you know, this earth, under the Roman government, there were a lot of things wrong with the Roman government. There were a lot of things he could have pointed to and said, we need to fix this, change this, and get some power and stop this, stop that. But he didn't care. He wasn't worried about that. Sort of like Jesus saying, you know, let the dead bury the dead. Not worried about stuff like that. Instead, Paul, like Jesus, was about his father's business. And what's our father's business? Is he trying to fix Canada? Is he trying to make Canada a Christian nation? Is he trying to fix the culture? No. He's trying to establish a new kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that you and I are a part of. And, the, and we get to have this incredible opportunity to invite others into it, but also to experience the fullness of it. And I think that's the call to action. It's, it's, not a, it's not a political call. That's not to say you don't get involved in, in the politics or you don't get involved in, in, in different uh, aspects of government and what's happening. I, I think there's a call and a place for that. I do believe that. But that's not the primary call of the church. We will never make this a Christian nation. There's never been a Christian nation, nor will there ever be a Christian nation, because that's not what God's up to. Remember that Abraham was to be the father of... Many nations, not the father of a Christian nation. And the church is to be multinational. That's what we're, uh, we're, we're investing in. That's what we're to be a part of. And so I think there's so many different aspects in which we can, we can be involved with in, within the political realm, or within the culture. We do that when we're, we're caring for, for young women who are pregnant with, through the pregnancy center, or people who are on the street at the Ray of Hope, 
Or, or maybe you get involved in, in helping women and children get out, escape the sex trafficking trade. There's all kinds of great ministries out there that are making an impact and changing the world and even impacting, yes, the culture, but it's not for their own sake. Do you see the difference? So often when I hear Christians talking about their own rights, and they're not worried about the rights of others. And that was the difference. That Paul was looking after those who were weak, those who were hurting. Because think about it. Paul didn't need to do any of that. Paul never, never needed to go on any missionary journey. Do you understand that? that? That going on those missionary journeys didn't make him any more loved. Didn't make him any more accepted. Didn't make him any more, any more righteous or holy. Kind of like Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, God said that about Jesus at the baptism before Jesus did anything, before he started his career in ministry. That could have been said about Paul, that he was who he was because he was born that way. But he was so enamored with God's love for him. As he said earlier in chapter 5 of this book, 2 Corinthians 5, I was compelled to love other people. I had to. I had to share that love. I couldn't, I couldn't keep that love to myself. I had, had to let others know. David, I had to let you know how much God loves you so that you would accept that and receive that knowing that that love would spill out of you and that you would love Devin and you would love Niven and, and that love would spread across to other people. That's what he was compelled with. He wasn't worried about himself. So he can embrace the weakness. He can embrace the persecution because he knew that God would be glorified in other people. So different from those false apostles. And so again, I see this as a call to action for ourselves that, that maybe we need to step out of what's comfortable for us. And again, it doesn't mean you have to be the apostle Paul, go on a missionary journey, start some churches and start some ministries. And it might be really simple. It might be as simple as engaging in with what's in front of you right now. As a mom. As a dad. As a friend. As a, as a daughter or as a son. That maybe all that God's asking you to is, is just what, right what's in front of you right now. And you might be thinking, oh, that's, I should be doing something bigger. That, that, that's, that's seemingly meaningless. Not to God. Not to God at all. Remember in Matthew 25, when he separates the sheep and the goats, and he says to the sheep on his right, come to me, come with me, who my father has blessed. Literally, who my father has spoken well of. And let me reward you. For when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was alone in a prison, you visited me. Notice how mundane those things were. They were so mundane that the people would say, I don't remember doing any of that. They never thought twice about it. And yet God did. He saw it and he says, that matters to me. It's like the parable of talents. All that he's saying is be faithful to what's in front of you. That's it. I don't need you to go change the world. That's my job, God says. I just need you to trust me with what's in front of you right now. And it might be your job. Might be at school. Again, it might be your family. Might be something seemingly so small, but it's not to God. Because he's looking for faithful men and women. And those are the people that he can use. Those are the people that will change this world. 
And so maybe it's simple as, as participating in a ministry, sharing your, your faith with people who don't yet know Jesus, reaching out to different people in this room, ask them how they're doing and caring about them, or just sitting with a child, ask them how their day went. It might be simple, but I think that's the call to action that God's giving to us. And I think when we understand that, we will see something far greater than what this world would ever point to. So again, this world judges differently than God does. The world looks at performance. God looks at the heart. Let me close with this poem. I don't know who wrote it, but it's, it's really powerful. It says, your name may not appear down here in the world's hall of fame, in fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The Oscars and the praise of men may never come your way, but don't forget God has rewards he'll hand out someday. This crowd on earth will soon forget when you're not on the top. They'll cheer like mad until you've fallen and their praise will stop. Not God. He never does forget. And in his hall of fame, by just believing on his son, forever there's your name. I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name. However small that's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall, for all the famous names on earth or the glory that they share, I'd rather be an unknown here than have my name up there. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.